Welcome to the Alliance Live podcast, spotlighting emerging issues, examples of good practice and innovation taking place within health and social care in Scotland. Hi, welcome to the latest in our Alliance Live podcast. My name is Tommy Whitelaw. I'm the project lead at the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland. And it's a great honour to join, be joined today with, by Mark Hazelwood, Chief Executive of the Scottish Partnership for Palliative Care. Uh, welcome, Mark. And firstly, can I start off by asking, how are you doing? How are you doing during this time? I'm good, thanks. Um, I'm lucky. I've, I've been able to work from home and the kit's worked fine. And um, so I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in fortunate circumstances. Thank you. Thanks for asking, Tommy. Thank you, thank you, Mark. Can you give us a wee bit of background uh, to Palliative Care Scotland? Just a little brief overview. Yeah, sure. The Scottish Partnership for Palliative Care has been going 30 years. And in essence, we bring together all those organisations uh, and individuals with an interest in improving people's experiences of death, dying and bereavement. Um, so these are issues that affect everybody. Um, they're inevitable experiences, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that we can do to improve those experiences for people. So our members are, um, you know, like there would be the hospices, all of the health boards. Uh, we link up with care homes and the social care sector. Um, all the IJBs are, are members of the partnership. So um, it's a, a broad and large membership. Um, I think that reflects the fact that, you know, um, palliative care in the broad sense has taken place all around us all the time in all sorts of different places and settings. And a, a very different experience for lots of us. I might come back into my own personal experience uh, later on in the chat. Can you, can you give us a wee update of where we were before uh, COVID-19 came upon us? Where were we with palliative care in Scotland? It's, it's quite hard to think back before the pandemic. Um, but one thing I would say is that there's lots of great palliative care in Scotland, but I don't think that palliative care itself is well understood what, what it is. So um, at the partnership, we, we like to think of palliative care as it's good holistic care, but it's care provided in the context where somebody's mortality is Im impacting on their priorities, their choices, um, and the decisions that they're making, both their own decisions personally, but also decisions perhaps that they're discussing and making together with health and care professionals. So it's, it's good holistic care uh, when somebody's in a situation where their health is in irreversible decline and life um, you know, is drawing to an inevitable close. But I think also it's important to say that palliative care isn't synonymous with dying. It's actually really about life. It's a very life-affirming uh, field. It's about how answering the question, how can you maximize the well-being and quality of life uh, with somebody during whatever life they have remaining, whether that's uh, years, months um, or days. And I think something else just worth mentioning is that palliative care is something um, for people of all ages. Obviously, most people die um, in old age. Uh, but also palliative care is something that can be of relevance for babies, children and young people. And so it's all ages. It's also all settings. So um, people often think about hospices um, or specialist NHS units providing palliative care, uh, which are really important. Um, but most palliative care is provided by um, 
in the community by GPs and district nurses, in care homes uh, by fantastic social care staff, um, and also on general wards in the hospitals. But of course, the bulk of care provided towards the end of people's lives is provided by families, friends and communities. And I think that's a, one of the big challenges for people just at the moment. At the moment, Mark, uh, what, what are the type of questions that you've been getting in the light of COVID at the moment? Have the, have the questions changed or the, the conversations changed? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we started to reflect on quite early on was, um, you know, what are, what, are, what are the questions and issues that are now um, coming to the forefront of everyone's minds? We've been through a very, very strange three months um, where almost every day um, we've heard stories of death and dying and loss. You can't look at the news without being bombarded with statistics about these things. So. It's been a very abnormal time, of course, and a very uh, anxious time for people. Um, so we've, we've provide, tried to, to now publish some information on the Good Life, Good Death, Good Grief website, which tries to um, address those questions that may be going through people's minds, particularly those questions perhaps for people who um, are more at risk of becoming severely ill with COVID-19 or who are looking after somebody or have loved ones who are at, at, at more at risk of becoming severely ill. Um, so questions like, well, um, what can I do to prepare for that? Um, what are the sorts of uh, care and treatments that are available for people if they become seriously ill? Um, if someone I love uh, becomes ill and it, uh, gets admitted to hospital, uh, what might happen there? Will I be able to visit? Um, what's other things that um, I can do myself or I can do together with a loved one in terms of planning and preparation uh, for that eventuality? I think, you know, we all we hope for the best, but there's also some value in actually in preparing for the worst. Um, and part of preparing for the worst is to learn a bit more and to do a bit of planning. Um, so you know, you might want to know, well, who is it who decides who, get, who might be admitted to hospital and why might a, a doctor decide to admit uh, one person and not another person? And then there's all the things you see out on social media, perhaps, um, you know, I've heard that older people won't be admitted to hospital or if I'm an old person, I won't be resuscitated. Yes. So we've also tried to look at some of the um, misinformation that's out there, some of the myths and tried to help um, people see more of the kind of facts and the way in which the system's operating at the moment. You know, it's a, it's a conversation, as a former carer for my mum, Joan, it's a conversation I wish I would have had with my mum, uh, caring for my mum living with dementia. But I found, uh, especially in the last few months of my mum's life, it was quite difficult for me. I'd been caring for my mum 24 hours a day. I knew in my heart my mum was very, very poorly, but having that conversation with the professionals that I encountered felt quite difficult. Uh, it would always seem to be, oh, it's the dementia. But actually, I felt it, there was more to be conversed in. And people almost backed away from the conversation, but I wanted to have the conversation. How, yes. do, we, how do we change that, Mark, in many ways? Okay. So I think um, sometimes from the professionals point of view um, there can be a caution about entering into these discussions people 
um, perhaps are worried about um, taking away hope. Um, and also I think we have to recognize that um, often it's, it's difficult for clinical staff to know whether somebody is really reaching the end of their life or not. There's a whole lot of uncertainty around it. Um, so there are, there are good ways to have these conversations. I think one of the most powerful things is for uh, the public to learn more about these things and for them to be um, in a better position to try and to be answering, asking, asking the questions that they need answered. Um, so um, as well as supporting the professionals to engage in these conversations, I think the public can learn more and do more to try and initiate and lead these conversations as well. I think, I think we need both sides sorted out. Yeah, I'm with you on that actually. But what, what can we do for healthcare professionals on the front line who are exposed to loss of life at extreme levels, maybe on a daily basis? And many now that during the COVID are maybe experiencing death and more, and maybe more death or in different situations. What, what can we do to, 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 to support the healthcare professionals in these situations? Yeah. So, I think that's right. There are um, people involved in areas of work now, which they wouldn't have been three months ago. Yeah. Um, and they're seeing and experiencing things which they would never have been expecting to see or experience. Um, and I think a lot of very difficult and, and, and tough things, both obviously for the public, but also for the professionals as well. So I think there's something around, um, and in, in, in the run-up, as if we, if we rewind to sort of the beginning of, of, of March, preparation and providing a little bit of training for people who are perhaps moving uh, into an area which they weren't familiar with. So some of the basic familiarization about what might be expected at the end of life, um, often a huge cause of worry um, for, for, for carers is just, it's the number one thing, not really knowing what to expect. So I think if we can shine a light on things, I think that can help a little bit. Um, I think also good leadership and, and teamwork amongst the clinical teams um, and mutual support seems to be key to um, helping those people get through what is a really, really tough time. And I think, um, listening to the experiences of, of, of professionals working in difficult circumstances. I think you know, the, the numbers are going down now, thank goodness. Uh, but I think we have to remember the, um, the trauma that people have gone through, both public and professionals. And I think, I think that will be a legacy that um, will be with us for a long time. And I think we have to recognize that and provide support for people to um, work through, to acknowledge the trauma and to give people time and space and support to work through some of those, um, some of those difficulties that they'll have, I think, in the future. And you know, I'm thinking about, it's not just the numbers, it's about the very, the difficult things about the way in which some people will have died during um, the, the, the COVID pandemic. And particularly we all, you know, we're all aware of the extent to which it's been difficult for family and friends um, to be with somebody. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously awful for family and, and friends. 
also for the person dying, but also very, very difficult for staff who may sometimes have had, have had to explain that it's not possible for somebody else to be there and are then trying to do their best um, to provide comfort and support for somebody else's loved ones. Yeah, I think that's maybe one of the big differences at the moment is family can't, can't be sitting beside a loved one if they're in hospital yeah. in, in so many circumstances. I mean, it, it, can you kind of touch on the narrative around the understanding of treatment decisions, the kind of planning and process? And you touched on it earlier. It, uh, there's been lots of chat in the media about do not resuscitate letters uh, yeah. uh, that people have been surprised in some ways to find or see uh, yeah. or a parent receiving. Can you touch on that a little bit about that? Yeah. So I suppose the first thing that I would say is that um, it would have been good if everyone had been better prepared. Um, and by that, I mean, our, our, you know, in all sorts of ways. So. Um, I think then there were some well-intentioned um, things done, which perhaps in individual instances didn't work out so well. So, you know, there was a lot of coverage of um, some of the communication that happened around um, DNA CPR, do not attempt uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Um, so thinking about um, CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, um, an intervention, uh, a medical intervention designed to um, see whether it can help somebody whose heart stopped. Um, and we all see it on the television, uh, in films. Um, somebody collapses with a, the heart stopped and the actors all rush forward and in no time at all, um, the person is miraculously restored to complete health. Um, and I think it's successful in about 90% of movies and TV shows. Yes. Um, you know, the reality is very different. Um, so the intent behind um, asking somebody whether or not they would wish to have um, CPR um, and the intent around decision-making around CPR is about trying to avoid somebody having CPR when it's not gonna help them okay. or where they themselves have decided that, well, it might help them or it might not, but it might lead them, might leave them in even worse health and they don't want to take the risk of that. So it's a well-intentioned um, thing, um, but dependent on um, good communication on the part of professionals and also a, probably a level of understanding that we haven't invest, invested enough in, in terms of uh, how the public perceives it. Um, you know, so CPR is, can, is a, a pretty invasive and aggressive thing with people pumping up and down on your che um, chest and tubes being stuck in. Now, whenever somebody dies, their heart stops. Um, so if somebody is already um, sick and unwell from other conditions, uh, we know that CPR won't work. And the purpose of having a do not attempt CPR form is to make sure that those people providing care right at the end of life are aware that CPR won't work. And so that somebody can be allowed um, a peaceful, natural death at the end of their life and for it not to be um, interfered with and dominated by a whole lot of um, clinical staff rushing around doing something really quite unpleasant to them. So that's the good intention. 
Um, that's why it's an important thing, but you know, it, it does depend on getting the communication right. Um, and um, it's very understandable that people get um, upset uh, when the communication um, isn't good. I suppose it's for me, for me personally, it's one of many conversations I wish I would have had with my mum, caring for my yeah. mum. Uh, yeah. before living with dementia and and during those years living with dementia I was consistently over the years and, and I have to say right through to the end of life thinking to myself I wish I would have had this conversation with my mum because I'm I'm kind of trying to make decisions here that that I'm making yeah. and is, is it a duty or should we all be having these conversations as families well, I would never say everyone must do anything. I think it's about yeah. individual choice. Yeah. And different families are different people, different, different people are different. Um, I, think, I think what we need to do is to um, provide information. Um, this is a really hidden area. Um, so I think people need to have opportunities to learn more about what happens towards the end of life. Um, and then I think people may start to see more and understand more the advantages that there can be for them and for their loved ones um, if they've done a bit of preparation. And that preparation, yeah, hopefully that might include some conversations about what somebody thinks they might like or what they might not like. Um, and then as loved ones, if we end up having to help inform decisions about what happens, if our loved one isn't well enough to contribute, then we'll feel better informed. Um, and maybe some planning can be done as well, so there's some stuff written down as well. I just wanted to touch on a little bit about bereavement uh, at the moment, Mark. I, uh, after my mum passed away, I, as a being a 24-hour carer, uh, I wrote a little blog called What Becomes of the Brokenhearted. I'd kind of lost my place. I'd, my mum, I was brokenhearted over my mum passing away, but at the same time, I'd lost the purpose getting up every day to try and care for my mum. How do we support people and support others with their bereavement? So about 80% uh, of people will get the support that they need to get through the difficult times that comes with bereavement from their normal social networks. Um, that doesn't mean that it's easy. Uh, but it does mean that friends, family, colleagues, neighbours um, can provide the sort of support that um, people need. So that's that's the responsibility for for all of us. Um, and uh, you know, it's been amazing. I'm sure you've been out clapping in your street, and I've I've met from a distance neighbours I didn't know very well. Um, and I hope that some of those connections um and the clapping stopped now but i hope some of those connections will endure for many reasons i think one of the things that i hope is that um those connections can be something which enhance the networks that people may have to help them through if they've been bereaved mm -hmm. so then the question is well what you know how can you how can you help somebody um who's 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 suffered a difficult loss over the last two or three months or you know or at any time you know up to 60,000 people die each year in Scotland 
Um, so getting on for a quarter of a million people will be bereaved each year as well, if you think about um, that. So I think people often worry a lot about saying the wrong thing. Um, that's a natural thing. I, you know, I, I might say the wrong thing, I might make it worse. Um, don't say nothing uh, would be a suggestion because I think, yes, you might say something that's not the perfect thing. Um, but on the other hand, you might be so worried about saying the wrong thing that you cross the road, you never say anything. And that person who's um, bereaved, their feeling of loneliness and isolation, which they may well have anyway because of their grief, will feel worse because the people who would have talked to them, you know, perhaps are uh, crossing the street and, and not saying something. So don't worry too much about saying the wrong thing. But I think just be honest. Um, you know, if you don't know what to say, say, look, I don't know what to say, but I'm really sorry. Um, and you know, if you think about it, of course, you, you're never going to come up with such amazing words that you're going to take away that loss. There's really nothing you can do to make that loss right, um, other than to make that connection and, and say something and not worry so much about saying the wrong thing that you leave somebody without that, that connection. And then listen, just listen, be there to listen. Yeah, listen and, and be kind uh, through yeah. life and, 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 and death also. Mark, do you have a, a, a kind of final message for listeners uh, at this time to people who'll be listening to this podcast? Do you have a final message or any sign posted to support our services or a message you'd like to share with, with people who are listening to this podcast? Yeah, I've got a couple of things. And our work is partly about formal services and partly um, about the wider community, about the society we live in. Um, I think in formal services, I've, I've had the privilege of working um, alongside people in the palliative care community over the last three months. And I just wanted to, to, to pay tribute to the amazing work that they did in preparation to make sure that um, we knew that pe people would die, um, but the amazing work that they did um, to be prepared in terms of having um, people and medication and the right skills in the right place um, to reduce suffering as much as possible uh, and the, the, the dedication and the collaborative work that they did was amazing um, and so there's limits to what healthcare can do in terms of saving lives sadly and we've really all learned that lesson again over the last three months but there's no limits to the care and compassion um, that our services um, can provide, and uh, they've, they've done a fantastic job. The other thing I, I wanted to say was uh, in terms of our wider communities, and I talked about the, the clapping. So services are part of making um, people's experiences of death, dying, and breathing as good as possible. But a huge, the other huge part of it, a bigger part probably, is our communities. So I think um we talked a bit about how we can support each other uh through bereavement i think also we can do work to uh care for people who are reaching the end of life as friends uh neighbors and colleagues we can all um pull back the curtains a bit and learn a bit more about that phase of life 
Um, and we've just actually um, produced a short online module called End of Live Aid Skills for Everybody. Um, and it aims to give the basic knowledge that everyone should have um, about how to support somebody who's reaching the end of life. Um, and I think if, if more people were able to learn a bit more about that sort of thing as a society, um, we'd be better, better prepared to provide that kind of support towards the end of life. Well, thank you, Mark, and thank you for paying tribute to so many. And I'd like to pay tribute to the work you and your colleagues do to support families uh, across Scotland. Uh, thank you for your time today, Mark, and thank you for your kind conversation. Thanks for the invite. It's been really nice to talk to you, Tommy. Find the Alliance Life podcast on all major podcast streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Alliance Life also produces webinars, video interviews, and case studies. Watch these by visiting www.alliance-scotland.org.uk forward slash live. That's www.alliance-scotland.org.uk forward slash live. To follow along regularly with Alliance Live content, use the hashtag Alliance Live on Twitter.